0: This episode of Do You Wanna Hear a Story? is intended for adult audiences. It may contain graphic descriptions and course language. Listener discretion is advised. How does $15 million for 11 minutes work sound? On what seemed to be just any other Wednesday, Ray Bennett and his highly trained team of criminals would go on to steal millions of dollars from the bookies at the Victoria Club. Do you wanna hear a story? Ah.
1: Can you give a few seconds of your time? You can do stop. Good evening, folks. can't die. The atomic power plant right, in the city of
0: Kiev <laughs> was damaged. How do you measure such an astonishing world. moment history. <laughs> in history?
2: You can't believe such an eye. the today. energy crisis will in You want to hear my story? Tonight... An Australia-wide hunt is continuing for the Victoria Club Bandits, so far without success. Official estimates still put the haul at one and a half million dollars, but there are many in Melbourne who now say the figure could be as high as five million. We'll be crossing to Melbourne shortly for the latest on today's investigations, but first we look at connections interstate. Jim Whaley reports.
0: There seems little doubt tonight that associates in Sydney or Brisbane were in on the job. I understand that at least five other men were involved in this copybook robbery. One police officer in the midst of inquiries in Sydney told me today that some of the culprits could have left the country already, probably to Newmere or Fiji. Breakthroughs in the case from this end will not come quickly. Police will be relying mostly on informants and a lot of footwork. Raymond Bennett, or Ray Chuck, or just Chuck as he was known, is considered to be one of Australia's most intelligent criminals, quickly donning the moniker of a criminal mastermind. Are you familiar with Ray Bennett? I know I asked that at the the beginning of every story I tell, but he was he was in a lot of the underbelly series if you ever watch those.
1: So I can't say that I'm that familiar with Ray Bennett, because my underbelly watching stopped halfway through the second season.
0: Fair enough. I think he was I think he appeared in some of the later ones because this all took place around the seventies. Right. So before I can tell you about the largest cash robberies in Australia's history, depending on who you speak to, I have to tell you about Ray Bennett. So the history books would say Ray Bennett, bank robber, criminal mastermind, organizer of the great bookie heist and murderer. He was a huge criminal figure. He planned and pulled off the greatest heist in Australia's history, netting him and his crew over fifteen million dollars in the seventies. Despite his charm, he was a vicious criminal and a killer. He and his various crews were known to terrorise innocents across not just Australia, but Europe as well. In the criminal circles of Melbourne, Ray was looked at as somewhat of a cult icon of crime. He was known as the guy who could pull off the jobs that others deemed to be impossible. It was well known that his jobs were always meticulously planned with specific training for everyone involved and executed with military-like precision. So growing up in Melbourne's Outer West, he was known even at a young age to be a petty crim. At just 14, he was already involved with the Melbourne's Painters and Dockers, who during the 60s and 70s were at the top, if not the entire Melbourne underworld. I know of the Painters and Dockers
1: and only because uh, the movie Chopper with Eric Banner... Yep. Uh, They are referenced and that movie is now 20 years old. So obviously when I hear about something like that, I do a bit of research and I found out a bit about the Painters and Dockers. So yes, that's definitely something I'm familiar with. Yeah.
0: So on paper, the the Painters and Dockers, it was a union for dock workers. And Mm -hmm. by definition, I mean, they were responsible for painting ships and unloading the boats as they'd come into the docks
1: which is where most crime
2: happens
0: right and that's and the the reality of the Painters and Dockers were I guess like I said they were they were at the top of the Melbourne crime underworld if not they made up at least 90% of it if something big was happening in Melbourne whilst the Painters and Dockers were around
1: they were involved
0: it's hard to imagine that they weren't involved and if you tried to do something and you didn't involve them it was only gonna it was only gonna lead (laughs) to trouble for you yeah exactly so a lot of the things that they were known for was everything from a basic level, shoplifting, armed robberies, extortion rackets, up to drug dealing, hijackings, and even murder. Constant internal disputes with the Painters and Dockers meant that, I use this term loosely, management was often changing. It was a well-known fact that whoever ran the Painters and Dockers basically ran the Melbourne underworld. Right. So we still, we've still got a lot of unions these days, I just don't think um, they're anything like what the Painters and Dockers used to be like.
1: I don't think they'll be making any underbelly series for the current version of the unions. I don't think they quite register like they did in the 60s, 70s and 80s. No.
0: So when we talk about all the all the different crimes that the Dockers were involved in, um, one of Ray's first jobs with them was something that would later be called ghosting. So he would basically... This is back when you you'd go to work, you'd punch your time card in, you'd punch out when you were done... And that was how many hours you'd work for the day. So his job was to go in, punch in multiple time cards, punch out multiple time cards at the end of the day, and there was someone collecting all of these paychecks for hours never really worked. <laughs> it's a it's a pretty pretty easy con, but it worked and they would they said for many years at any given point there was close to double the amount of paychecks being drawn than there were actual men working. For the guys at the top this was deemed to be an easy way to make money because they would spread it out amongst anyone close to them it was it was just it was free cash it was easy money mm-hmm. the painters and dockers i guess the best way to look at it it was ray bennett's apprenticeship into crime right so like any other job the painters and dockers offered for the right employees the chance to grow within the organization you know you, you came in you did your time you started out doing the, the basic level jobs like ghosting and you would work your way up.
1: <laughs> Sounds like a proper organisation.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the thing with Ray is he quickly, well, he found a way to quickly fast track his apprenticeship and he began taking on more important work. So his time on the docks would expose him to some of Melbourne's most notorious criminals. And he was keen to quickly develop his skill set, build his contact list and equipped himself, I suppose, for a life in crime. It was apparently well-known that by the time he was 17, he was carrying a gun, and he was the type of guy that would have no issue using it, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. He, Like I said, he...
1: Especially today, too. I don't know many 17-year-olds walking around with
0: guns. No, and I think I think if you look at today versus, you know, during the 60s and the 70s, people grew up a lot quicker. Mm, you had to. You know, so he's he's entered the adult world at 13 14 and he's been exposed to nothing but crime i guess with anything you know the, the closest people that surround you you're gonna you're gonna eventually start to mimic them and behave in the same type of fashion so for me thinking of a 17 year old having a gun and not having any issue using it that's crazy
1: mm. yeah because you're not hearing about shootouts with 17 year olds all the time are you especially now
0: so by the time he's 19, he's already on the police's radar, obviously. He's got a number of convictions under his belt at this point for stealing, for home break-ins. And as he starts to mature, I suppose, so do his crimes, going from the everyday house break-in to more sophisticated safe crackings and major thefts.
1: So you could say that this is a perfect example of the justice system and the penal system not working. As you said, he's got a, couple, uh, a number of convictions under his belt, yet the best is yet to come. <laughs>
0: Pretty much. I mean, by the time he's 19, like I said, the cops already know who he is and mm. you could, I don't know, this is all speculation, but I think as it goes with the painters and dockers, the police, what's the nice way of saying it, could be bought?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think there was a scene in the second that series of Underbelly where the, the joke was, would you like a ham sandwich? And the ham sandwich was a, a brown lunch paper bag full of cash.
0: Right, so I don't know that they would necessarily turn a complete blind eye on, you know, go and do whatever you want, commit whatever type of crimes you want, but from what I could understand, Ray had done a, a good job of aligning himself with some of the higher-up guys, so they probably didn't want their, their quickly growing junior to end up in jail.
1: No, exactly right.
0: So at 20, he meets who would become his wife. Her name was Gail Petrie. She was 17 at the time, and I think this this was a I guess, an opportunity for Ray. This could have been a turning point in his life, and he had the chance, the the cliched fork in the road, I can either settle down, become a family man, get a real job, or do exactly what he went and and did, and that was double down. And at the end of the day, I think for him, he was always a criminal first. That was front of mind for him. Everything else was just everything else. Like most well-known people, Ray had one goal, and that was to be the best. He wanted to be known as the man who could do what others said couldn't be done. And he wanted to be known as a criminal mastermind, which is interesting to me because you think about, we talk about it a lot, you know, the likes of Elon Musk, Steve Jobs. I'm not comparing, I'm not saying that they're in the same league at all, (laughs) but it's funny how he used this determination that he had because he you know, he wanted to be the best. He wanted to be the the smartest criminal, he wanted to be known as the guy that could do things that other criminals couldn't do. It's hard not to think that if he had have used that determination to go off and do something else, what, what could have been for the guy. Mm-hmm. So to be the best, I suppose, you've got to be prepared to do what others won't. And like I said, Ray was well known to be a fearless criminal. He wasn't afraid to point a gun. He definitely wasn't afraid to kill. And one thing that he was famous for, he was not afraid of the police at all. Something that I would consider a potent mix for a criminal. Absolutely. Senior Detective Brian Murphy, who's now retired, he was what everyone calls one of the toughest cops of his generation. Because I suppose we talk about criminals being different back then, but I think the police were also different back then. They They could probably get away with a little bit more than what the police can get away with today. And even he was known to say that Ray was the only criminal that he ever really feared. That's a worry.
2: He's most probably the only bloke I've ever worried about. In his own way, he was the mastermind criminal. He was frightened of nothing. He uh, knew more than uh, the old blokes that had schooled him. And as far as he was concerned, he was number one.
0: That they would go on to become enemies, both well-known to one another, multiple run-ins with one another.
2: It's
1: hilarious, and I think I've mentioned this point on podcasts before. The
0: police know who the criminals are, yet
1: they can't do anything. It's amazing.
0: I don't want to... Pump up being a criminal, and I don't want to say you know it takes intelligence to be a criminal, but I suppose to have a life in crime and to get away with it and to make a living out of it, because a lot of that's what a lot of these guys do. And there's still plenty of those criminals in today's day and age where Mm -hmm. they don't have real jobs, they don't go to an office and wear a suit and tie. their Their livelihood comes from crime. Yeah. Even though the cops might know who you are, I suppose it all comes down to what you can prove. That's true. So Ray Ray was really the guy that you you did not want to receive a threat from because it would almost always be followed through on. And like most criminals, he worked to keep his private and his professional life separate. His wife, Gail, as you can imagine, spent majority of her time worrying. And while he never spoke about it, she knew, as did most, his growing reputation within the Painters and Dockers and what his growing standing in the criminal underworld was. And the reason I say that is because it came to as a relief to her when Ray would suggest he's planning on moving overseas to England she figured it was an opportunity to maybe get away from a life of crime I think without knowing either of these two people I'm just imagining if you're in a relationship with someone who is a criminal mastermind and an extremely well known criminal you're probably forever waiting for that day that he comes home or she comes home and says I'm not going to do this anymore I'm going to get a real (laughs) job yeah
1: yeah yeah I'd imagine so
0: Unfortunately for her, that wasn't the case. So, Ray's motives for moving overseas, again, leans back on his desire to be the best. So, put aside the fact that there was starting to be some issues in the Painters and Dockers that probably would be best avoided, if could. He also knew that going over to England would give him the opportunity to develop his skill set even more so and start to really hone his skills. He ends up in England with... A group of Aussie expats that are living over there, known as the Kangaroo Gang.
1: Oh, what a great name!
0: Yeah, uh, and they're they're a really well known group of guys who will basically rob anyone. Not not private homes. They were known more for shoplifting high end stores. Right. But picturing the time back in the the sixties and the seventies, you had these big payroll offices that would manage payrolls for companies and dole out the you know the checks or the cash or whatever it may be so a lot of those places would get knocked over by the kangaroo gang and it was um i guess that was like i said part of ray's desire to grow and develop his criminal skill set because he wanted to be the best that was all that was on his mind being the best criminal that he could be and uh it was you know well well documented that he considered shoplifting and anything equivalent to that totally beneath his skill set he tagged along with the with the the kangaroo gang during the early 70s, and it was after being arrested on one of these payroll jobs, <laughs> and he would do a small small stint of time in an English prison. Again, we talk about the fact that he's a smart guy; he's trying to use his time productively. So instead of just wallowing away in prison, he decides this is the perfect break he needs from everything to start planning out the perfect heist. We obviously know what the heist is. We're talking about the Great Bookie Heist and it's not it's not something that he's just pulled out of thin air so from all accounts this has been a this has been one of those untouchable jobs back in melbourne that every criminal has thought about doing once upon a time but right no one believes could ever be possible and the big reason is because all these bookies are connected i mean it's probably not a stretch to say if you're a bookie in the 60s and the 70s you you're probably pretty close to the criminals in that area
1: I'd say you've got some contacts with if you're not in direct contact with you've got some contacts with bookie people absolutely sorry with criminal people yeah absolutely.
0: they're not they're not knocking over a, an office of accountants here no so everyone's spoken about this everyone's wanted to do it because it's known to be a massive cash grab if, if you could if you could ever work out a way to do it tons of cash at any given point so once he arrives back in Australia this is now the mid 70s he gets back into work pretty much straight away he's had his break he's done his time in England he's been to prison he's got this plan that's kind of starting to consume him he's getting his 10,000 hours up exactly he's getting he's getting his time he's doing his time he's, he's making sure that when it comes to do the job every all his ducks are in line pretty much yep. so once he's back in Australia like I said him and um brian murphy or senior detective brian murphy did become very quickly enemies of one another and it wasn't long until their paths would cross again so there was a there was a theft of a leather goods store that senior detective brian murphy was working he said it was almost obvious that ray bennett was involved So one of the first things they did in the investigation was end up at Ray Chuck's house to have a discussion with him, two sides of every story, but Brian Murphy says when he got there, he met with Gail, Ray's wife, and it was nothing but pleasant. He said that she was Mm -hmm. more than welcoming, I suppose she wanted to give the chance for Ray to be proven innocent and we got nothing to hide, everything's great no problem come on in at this point ray and gail had a young son who would have only been maybe six to twelve months old senior detective brian murphy picked up the baby passed the baby to gail that's his side of the story hmm. ray bennett says that what he saw was brian murphy pick up the baby throw him across the room <laughs> okay so for i know who i'm believing well for ray it was pretty easy kill yeah. kill brian murphy yeah. So Ray confronted Murphy along with some other officers after work while they ate dinner.
2: Uh, Friday night, uh, myself and several other detectives went over to have a pizza at West Melbourne. We were met by uh, Bennett and another friend of his and uh, Bennett opened the conversation and he's still throwing uh, little babies across bedrooms. And uh, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, you fucking do know what I'm talking about. I said, well, if you think that, you can get fucked, because I haven't done it. One word led to another, and uh, he and his mate took off. I got my my mate to work with me to go back to Russell Street and get our guns, because I knew that one way or another something was going to happen.
0: Murphy's instincts were right. A few minutes later, Ray returned with a sawn-off shotgun, and it ended in a standoff, but two days later, Ray was in the police headquarters... And he would repeat his threat again to Murphy.
2: When I was going through the interview, he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, at my time, the time of my making, in the place where I want to, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. You're nothing but a cunt and that's it. I said, well, fair enough. I said, it started
0: now.
2: He said, no, it'll be when I'm fucking ready.
0: So fortunately for senior detective Brian Murphy, Ray would never actually get the chance to follow through on his threat to kill him. So a few years later, in 1975, the time was just right. Ray had his plan. Now all he needed was the crew. And he put together, as you can imagine, who's who of Melbourne criminals. You've got a guy like Ray Chuck Bennett, criminal mastermind. He's not, gonna, he's not getting around with just any random crim. He needs what he would consider to be the best of the best. So these guys, Ian Carroll, Lawrence Pendergast, Norman Chops Lee. Ian McNamara and Vinnie Mickelson. Everybody says that individually these guys were extremely good at what they did. Ray had his vision, the perfect heist. He believed he had the leadership, he had the plan. He knew that if he combined everything that these guys had to offer, they would easily go on to achieve greatness. But as far as robberies go, that's exactly what they did. They went on to achieve greatness. I should note here though. There's multiple versions of this story and there's a lot of speculation that two of the three Kane brothers were involved in the robbery. Mm-hmm. From, all, from everything that I can tell after looking at everything that's available, it doesn't look like that's the actual case. They definitely show up later on expecting part of the cash, but I'm, I'm quite certain they weren't actually involved in the heist. Right. So part of Ray's plan was to have his team trained up. Like I mentioned, he was well known to meticulously plan his robberies and make sure that the people he employed were ready to do the jobs that he was going to give to them. So all the small details, all the big details, everything was covered off by Ray. He had the vision. He would set his team up to get stamina training, fitness training. He'd run them through drills for months leading up to the heist, firearms training. While it's foreign for you and I to think of training for a robbery, this, like I said before, this was literally their job. This was their livelihood. And the intention, as always, was to be the absolute best in the business.
1: Sounds like they've got a better training program than a lot of employers that I've worked with over the last 10 to 15 years in terms of
0: onboarding and getting ready to do the job properly. You you could quite easily argue that, but I guess, like any organization, it comes from leadership, doesn't it? Ray didn't want a group of people doing a half-assed job. No. He wanted his crew to be the best in the business and... He was prepared to give them all the tools that they needed. Training, guns, plans, all that type of gear. Whatever they needed to do the job, he was going to provide to them.
2: Some of the men involved in uh, the Boku robbery were some of the most willing and most probably some of the most intelligent people that uh, have been known as criminals in the state of Victoria. So anyways, the
0: job's on. Wednesday, April 21st, 1976. A man dressed as a tradesman, enters the Victoria Club in Melbourne. Now, for those unfamiliar, the Victoria Club was where all the bookmakers would go after a race to settle up. So there was always a ton of cash there. Mm. But today was slightly different. And from everything I've told you about Ray Chuck Bennett up to this point, I think you would know that he's not going to knock over the Victoria Club on just any day. That's right. He's waiting for the day that he knows the bookies have the most amount of cash so Wednesday the 21st was just a couple of days after the Easter races and he knew that that was probably as good as it gets so the tradesman's in the club he starts asking everyone which fridge needs to be fixed and no one really knows what he's talking about this is a room full of bookies that are you know they're all excited about all this cash that they've got um so one of the guys shows him out the back and it's a commercial kitchen there's a bunch of fridges he says hey listen it must be one of these ones and he kind of left totally forgot about this tradesman who's there to fix the fridge obviously the tradesman is part of ray's ray's crew he quickly unlocks the back door and he lets <laughs> the whole team in so some great security it's that oh my easy God. fix a fridge we're in so now all of them are in balaclavas overalls guns they've got 118 bags with them ready to knock the place over <laughs> And within 11 minutes, that's exactly what they did. Within 11 minutes, they've completely turned the place over. No one injured, no one killed, but the bookies are now $15 million lighter than what they had been. Wow. This is the point in the story that I'd like to tell you, though. This is still technically an unsolved crime. What do you mean by technically? Well, no one's ever been convicted for the great bookie heist. There's little speculation around exactly what happened next, though, and the reason is no one's ever really been put on trial and said this is what happened you're going to jail for it so there's two versions the first version says they took all that money they fleed out the front door they loaded it up in a van and they were off all said and done i'm more inclined to believe that the second version of the story is the real version just knowing everything i know about ray chuck bennett yep the second version of the story goes that part of the preparation for the heist was Ray had rented office space two floors above the Victoria Club. Hmm. And the story goes that he and the five other guys would take this bag, all these bags of cash that they had, take them upstairs to their office, get undressed, get changed, and head off. No one was the wiser. The money was up there on top of the Victoria Club for at least three days before they would come back and get all that cash and move it. It's it's
1: strange to me, though, because I've worked in jobs where an armor guard truck comes and picks up daily takings or weekly takings from a retail store, which wouldn't be anywhere near $15 million. Mm. Again, my question would be, where's the security?
0: None, obviously. Yeah, I guess not a ton of it. And I I don't know the ins and outs of how all of this worked. Mm. But from what I can gather, the bookies didn't ever really want anyone to know how much cash they had.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't take a... If Ray Chuck can work it out, then geez.
0: Well, this is—I mean, this is the thing. By all the news reports, the bandits has got away with just over, just a little over a million dollars, right? But everyone, everyone knew that the bookies only said that so that they would, they could avoid having to pay tax on the actual amount.
1: <laughs> Smart.
0: So you know, as the story would develop, the speculation was it was somewhere between four and ten million dollars. But now, looking back. From 2020 in reality it was it was just over 15 million dollars. I should say I, I mean I hear 15 million dollars today I think that's a lot of money, but this was in 1976 so for reference, that's the equivalent of just shy of 70 million dollars today. It's a big heist. It's a big heist well, it is Australia's biggest ever cash heist and I'd also like to put into context in Australia or in Melbourne specifically, in the mid 70s the average annual salary was around7500 dollars. And you could purchase a house, again, average house price in Melbourne was about $33,000 in the (laughs) mid-70s.
1: Yeah. So, if you've got $15 million, you're swimming.
0: Right. So, tons of speculation around how they did it, how they got away with it, and how much they stole. I think it's all pretty apparent now, though. I think they took it upstairs. I think that makes sense, knowing what I know about Ray Bennett. He's not going to risk running out into the street with Mm. $15 million worth of cash. Mm Mm-hmm. Whatever you decide to believe on the story-wise, it's a known fact that it was Ray Chuck Bennett who pulled the Great Bookie heist off. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think that's a pretty interesting story, but it's what follows that's probably the most interesting. So like I said, no one has been convicted of the Great Bookie heist, still up till today. Mm -hmm. But one of the crew, Chops or Norman Lee, he was arrested and he was charged. He was the only man to, to be charged. He was found with forty thousand dollars in cash. It was able to be traced back to the bookie heist, but he was later acquitted of all charges. So, still no convictions. How, How was he acquitted?
1: No evidence, I guess.
0: No, not enough evidence. He had the yeah. cash, but what does that prove? Yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't prove that he was the guy there with the gun, yelling "Get down, put your head down." You yeah, know, ex- exactly. I mean, I don't. I can't account for everywhere where I can't account for where my cash comes from. You
1: know, I I definitely can't account for where all my cash comes from or where it all goes either.
0: I I can account where my income comes from. I can't account for where the physical cash comes from. I don't know the history of every individual note. We're leaving
1: this in. We're definitely
0: leaving this in. (laughs) So, like, so Ray set out to achieve the greatest heist in Australian history. He is at this point a criminal mastermind. There was one thing though that he could not have known. During the entire heist, only two of the armed men spoke. So there's six guys in this crew Mm -hmm. filling up bags of cash. Raised the leader. He was the first one in. He, after the tradesman. he was the one who instructed everyone to get on the floor. He was the one that explained, we're here, we're robbing the place. Don't move type of thing. One of the other crew though, Tony, Tony McNamara, maybe it was instinct... Maybe it was a reflex, but for whatever reason, he told everyone to put their heads down and don't look at him.
1: That sounds like a a gap in the training, to be honest.
0: So, one thing I don't think any of them were prepared for, especially not Tony, otherwise he probably wouldn't have said anything. But one of his old acquaintances was in the room. (laughs) He was a bookie named Ambrose Palmer. And like I said, I think the bookies, it's pretty clear that the bookies have, you know, a, a little bit of a loose connection with with the criminals. So I think the criminal code carries over and mm. Ambrose never spoke to the police. He never said, I know who did it. It was these guys. But he would tell someone probably a lot worse than the police knowing. And that was mm. the Kane brothers. So, you know, I mentioned earlier yep. that there was some speculation around the Kanes being involved. When Ambrose told the Canes what had happened and who had done it, that would essentially set off a huge chain reaction. Philip Dunn QC successfully defended the only man ever charged over the great bookie robbery, Norman Normie Lee. After Lee was acquitted, he told his barrister details of the elaborate robbery.
2: And their troubles only began once the robbery was finished because then the uh, gang of criminals from Sydney, the toe cutters came down. And were uh, after them, and not just their toes. You had people like the um, toe cutters in Sydney, uh, were snooping around. And this is what's alleged about Brian Kane and and his brother. They were trying to put pressure on the Western Suburbs villains and uh, get a part of the action. Well, they were told to go fuck themselves. And this is how the Brian Kane and Les Kane episodes
0: evolved after that. So Brian and Les Kane also painters and dockers were known to be some of the most vicious criminals in melbourne and i think it makes sense when i tell you how they would make a living majority of their income sorry income came came from standing over other criminals yep so they were the type of guys that they'd hear of a job they'd go and put their hand out and say we know you just did the such and such job where's mm-hmm. our cut and that's yep. how they made their money
1: that's it actually it's quite common in the criminal world like drug dealing and any type of you know Organized crime is that you know, if you run a an area where you believe you know that's your area, um, and someone wants to you know do something within your area, it's almost like a tax.
0: Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. I mean, and from every from all accounts, these guys, like I said, were were total psychopaths. So I don't think. Mm. You know, if they if, if you just knocked over a hundred bucks and they wanted twenty bucks, you're probably safer just paying in the twenty bucks and avoid having your legs broken or being stabbed. hmm So, like I said, Ambrose, the bookie, he told the Kane brothers, probably hoping for a kickback of his own. hmm Once it became known to them who was responsible for the bookie heist, they did exactly what they always do. They went and said, Where's our cut? Ray being the type of person he was criminal mastermind he's done all the preparation he's put his guys through months of training mm-hmm. he's made sure his guys are physically fit he's trained them up in how to use guns he's devised his plan he had no intentions of sharing the hall with the kane brothers or with anybody error in judgment here for ray because he would take a preemptive strike against the kane brothers this was in october of 1978 so a couple of years after the heist ray and and two of the other guys from the original crew Pendergast and Mickelson waited for Les Les Kane and his family to come home one night literally waiting in the driveway they ambushed him into the house they took Les into the living room left his wife and two kids standing in the kitchen point blank they shoot Les in the face Jesus in front of the wife and the two young kids they drag Les's body through the house They put him into the boot of his car, and like I said, the Kane brothers were extremely well known, and one of the things that Les was particularly known for was he drove a hot pink Ford. (laughs) They put Les into the boot of his hot pink Ford, they drive off, Les and his car never found. Right. That's still as of today, 2020, never found.
1: Not hard to chop up a car. No,
0: but you, you know, I suppose with these high profile murders... Hmm. It's just crazy to think that this was 35 years ago. No, 45 years ago, never found. By now, Ray's gone into hiding. On one hand, he's gotten away with the perfect crime. He did it. But now he's dealing with the fallout of murdering Les, trying to keep his family safe. He makes no contact with them. He makes no contact with his old crew. He keeps clear of home, basically. You kind of say maybe it's not a good thing being a criminal because, yeah, he got away with $15 million cash, but now he's... Hold up somewhere and That's he can't right. spend it. He can't do anything.
1: Yeah, I've changed my mind. I don't think I'm going to do it now.
0: No. <laughs> yeah. So while the cops had nothing to pin on Ray or any of the guys for the robbery, Ray Chuck, Pendergast and Mickelson were all charged with the murder of Les Kane in November of 1978. And while they were all acquitted at trial... What? Pen- yeah, no, again, no evidence. Eyewitnesses? Nobody... No oh, murder on. weapon. Yeah, no but proof. Eyewitnesses. You got his wife. You've mm-hmm. got his two young kids. That's mm-hmm. it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. My my that's husband's gone. He. What you really? There's no proof. What do you mean? There's an eyewitness, and now my husband's gone. How is that not proof enough?
0: But mate, what if I call the cops now and I say I saw Jason do this? I saw it happen. Do you want don't, to end up eyewitness. in jail, even if they can't? But they can't prove it. They've yet, got yet, no
1: proof. Oh, I don't know, man. It just seems a bit, a bit much.
0: But that—that's how it all works. You've got to be able to prove it. A, a mm. witness is only good when it substantiates the facts. I that's think the all burden of proof is
1: too harsh. I think. I think we need to lower the burden of proof to get some of these, you know, miscreants off the
0: streets. I'm, I'm not defending them, but imagine, <laughs> imagine the state of, the state of it all if you could just say someone did something.
1: Yeah, we'd have less criminals on the streets.
0: You'd have less people on the streets. Every time someone someone looked at me wrong, I'd just say, (laughs) they killed someone.
1: I don't think that would happen. I think you're thinking
0: the worst of people. Well, you need to be able to prove it. And that's why I made made the point of the fact that his body and his car were never found. There's no proof. Right. Right. So, Pendergast and Mickelson at this point quickly get out. They go into hiding. They know it's all about to hit the fan here because... Mm -hmm. Everyone already had their suspicions that Ray and his gang did the murder of Les, but now it's basically the spotlight's been put on it at this point. So Ray, unfortunately for him, he had some unanswered charges for armed robbery of a payroll office, which meant as soon as he was acquitted for Les's murder, he was taken straight back into custody. And guess where he ended up?
1: I'm going to say he ended up somewhere pretty famous with someone pretty
0: famous. He ended up in... He did. He ended up in H Division with Chopper Reed.
1: <laughs> H Division. Uh, you can't see me now, but I'm doing the thing that um, Jimmy Luffnan did on his wrist when they caught up later and he goes, H Division, he puts like the fingers on his wrist. Yeah. H Division. <laughs> Crazy.
2: Yeah, he was in H Division, and, uh, and, and the, the Canes had all their people down there plotting and planning to stick knives at him in H Division. And that's why he was. That's why he was pleased that I went in the yard with him. Because I went in the yard with him. You're as sweet as a bun. I ran Hayes Division. It's not um, beat around the bush. I ran. I ran H Division for ten and a half years. I ran the place.
0: So, figuring that he'd be safer in jail than out on the street, knowing that Brian Kane would be out for revenge, I guess he figured he had a little bit of time to work out what's next. Hmm. The one thing he didn't plan on was an attack whilst he was back at the courthouse. Probably not.
2: Raymond Patrick Bennett was gunned down in the corridors of the courthouse as he was being led to the 10th court to face armed robbery charges. The killer stood at the top of a flight of stairs and fired three shots, hitting Bennett twice in the chest and in one of his hands. As the killer calmly turned and went down the back stairs of the court, Bennett reeled backwards and ran into a courtyard where he collapsed in a pool of blood. The police officers escorting him after being warned by the killer not to follow chased Bennett believing he was trying to escape
0: so due to their long lasting feud old mate senior detective Brian Murphy was actually at the top of the list of suspects for his murder really yep
2: really yep wow the previous Sunday I'd been to Carlton with my wife and one of my daughters for the Italian festival and um, we were about to go into which was a cafe up there and uh, a bloke came out put his head down and just kept going and I said to my wife, I said, that's Brian Cain. He's wearing the same cap as I've got? And which anybody could wear them, but he looked more like me. And how later on a photo fit was done by witnesses. And one of them was sent to me with, I wonder who this is. And much intimating that uh, I was the bloke that shot Chuck in the court and uh, have a look at this. Uh, I did nothing about it, I couldn't have cared less. I knew where I was and what I had done. But a lot of policemen most probably thought that uh, I was behind it.
0: Nowadays, though, no one denies that the shooter was Brian Kane. He was there. He was dressed as a barrister, (laughs) fake beard, waiting in the court. (laughs) Yeah, whole nine yards, waiting in the courthouse corridors. He'd publicly declared at this point Ray Chuck was a dead man. After Mm -hmm. killing his brother, I think... No one doubted that Brian Kane was going to get his revenge. Brian Kane, along with many criminals, were obviously well-connected on both sides of the law. And Mm -hmm. at this point, still it remains unproven. There was always speculation that Brian had the assistance from the police in the murder of Ray Chuck Bennett. Just like the great bookie heist, though, even though everyone knows that Brian did it, Ray's murder still technically remains unsolved today. He died at just 32.
2: The police department gave uh, my squad the job of uh, guarding the body down at the undertakers because they reckoned that the canes were going to get him, chop his hands and feet off and boast them with his wife. And I was looking at him, I thought, well, what a waste of a life. Here you are, the age you are, and uh, your wife and kids left behind. Yeah, what was it all worth?
0: Thanks for listening to this week's story. We really appreciate when you take the time to subscribe, rate and review the podcast if you've enjoyed the great bookie heist we've got some great news next week we've got our brand new podcast heists launching season one debuts next tuesday we would really appreciate if you take the time to search on either apple podcasts or spotify for heists hit that subscribe button the first three episodes will be out next tuesday again for dropping in. We hope you'll make you this afternoon.
2: a weekly visit. And hope Bring the family. Hope you enjoy oil. the evening as much as we've enjoyed Please having drive you here. Carefully and come back again Good soon. Good night. Good night now. Good night.